Welcome to impactboom.org. We search the globe to find the people, stories, ideas and inspiration to help you create maximum positive impact. Each week, Impact Boom brings you thought-provoking interviews with world-leading practitioners passionate about creating positive social change. These designers, social entrepreneurs, educators, innovators, thinkers and doers share their projects, initiatives, thoughts and insights on creating a better world. You can find all the stories, links and other great content at impactboom.org. Follow us on Facebook or Twitter for the latest updates or subscribe to the newsletter or on iTunes. Thanks for listening to episode four of Impact Boom. My name's Tom Allen. I'm the director of Seven Positive, and I'm passionate about bringing you the latest interviews and insights to help you create positive social impact. Today, we're speaking with Professor Margaret Malpetti, a highly experienced and passionate academic, currently working at Queensland University of Technology as professor and head of the School of Design. Margaret has a vast range of experience working with some of the world's leading universities, such as the Pratt Institute, Parsons School of Design, Victoria University Wellington, and QUT. Margaret's a strong believer in the power of design and the creative industries to drive positive change and to contribute to social, economic, and environmental innovation. So on today's podcast, we'll discuss how Margaret believes academia, research, and partnerships with industry can be used to create positive social impact. We'll talk about a range of projects Margaret's been involved in, including hosting the recent Social Lightscapes workshops in Brisbane. And along the way, we'll undoubtedly get some invaluable insights, tips, and inspiration from Margaret. Margaret, thanks very much for joining us. Thanks, Tom. I'm delighted to be with you today. Great. So, Margaret, just to start things off, could you please share a little bit about your background in design and academia? Yeah. I started out uh, very early on in academia as a university student who was studying art history. Mm -hmm. And then I became interested in design because I liked uh, the impact that it had, kind of real-world effect uh, Mm -hmm. that that you you could see and measure. And then uh, I decided to study some more and do my, you know, master's and then my yep. PhD. And before I knew it, I was pretty much only qualified to be an academic. <laughs> Which seems to be in sometimes a bit of a trap that people fall into. But obviously for you, it's something that's worked out really, really well. And you've, you know, you really pushed forward and you've worked all around the world. So what is it that drives you to work in, in academia? Yeah, I mean, it's interesting because I think some people have a very clear uh, idea about where they want to go with their Mm. professional life, and I was maybe a little bit self-indulgent and spoiled, and I just did what was interesting to me and what I found, um, you know, excitement in, and, and that increasingly became design, and as a design historian, uh, I have a a, a particular perspective which allows me to kind of look across disciplines and see how does design operate in the world, you know, socially, culturally, yeah. economically, and I find that endlessly fascinating and incredibly important. So mm-hmm. uh, for me, it's it's just been a, a, a continual process of seeing how can I contribute to that. And yeah. luckily for me, I've been given a number of opportunities, not only to teach and yeah. research in, in, in the university sector, but also to have you know, leadership positions mm. where uh, you know, I take great 
um, pride and pleasure in being able to, you know, support students to, you know, find their paths to help shape curriculum and research programs that have a kind of bigger impact, a social impact, an environmental impact. And I think that's, you know, that's an important role, and, and I'm, I'm, I feel fortunate to be able to do that. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, you've certainly got some really vast experience across different continents. So how have you seen that tertiary education sector shift, and where do you see it heading into the future? Yeah, I mean, interesting in that when I started out uh, in, in academia and, and design schools, I was at uh, Parsons mm. in New York City and Pratt. Right. Uh, and it, yeah, it sounds very impressive, but you know, <laughs> it was really survival. <laughs> <laughs> you often don't appreciate things in the moment, but yeah. it, I, it's an interesting place to be in New York City, and in particular in schools like Parsons or Pratt Institute, because they're hubs for lots of professional designers that are working in different disciplines who dip in and out and teach units, yeah. um, but aren't really, it's not a sustained community, so it's just flocks. And that was really rich and that, you know, constantly I would be exposed to new ideas, new drivers um, in industry, mm. very international students. Um, so very rich, uh, but kind of um, chaotic sure. environment, let's say. Yeah. So that was that was good, but I think that's quite unique to that market. When mm-hmm. you're talking about a place like New York City, you're talking about private design schools rather than yeah. um, government-funded universities. Sure. So when I moved to New Zealand and took a job at Victoria University of Wellington, mm-hmm. that was the first time I kind of run into the sort of machine that yeah. is kind of big tertiary institutions. And that was Quite great. a change. Yeah, it was a huge change. I remember just being shocked by all the paperwork and all the meetings and all the... Bureaucracy. Like, yeah, <laughs> I was just... I didn't know how anyone got anything done. Mm. But then, you know, fairly quickly, uh, you know, it, I was able to identify, okay, actually, if I want to do something, there's a kind of this avenue or there's this channel. And the great thing about bigger universities is that you have a, a tremendous resource you know, in terms of support for research, yeah. support for international engagement, um, student opportunities, uh, working with industry. There's so much more to, to, to shape. Yeah. So, so you know, while I'm not a big fan of bureaucracy, let's say, I, I think it, it, it serves a purpose that, that I, you know, I'm willing to sacrifice some freedom for. Yeah, okay. So, um, so when I started it in New Zealand at Victoria University, that's when... I had a much bigger role in terms of curriculum, research, uh, staff mentoring, and I began to think about the sector more holistically. So that's mm-hmm. probably where I could give some better insights. Yeah. And I think what I was interested in then was the changing nature of technology mm-hmm. coming into design yep. and how that was, in some instances, changing mm. um, traditional practices, but at the same time bringing them forward. So trying to look at how that could be integrated into studio practice yeah. um, in a way that you didn't lose traditional skills. Mm. Um, now that's not particularly groundbreaking of a comment, but, <laughs> but I think th- there were some significant shifts that happened then. And the mm. other thing about oh, when you're talking about 3D printing and um, computational design and some of these technologies that were coming into the market yep. um, at that time 
was that it began to break down some of the disciplinary boundaries. Yeah. So yeah. someone could be working in, uh, you know, code, but factoring into a kind of traditional industrial design outcome. Yeah. So that, for me, was the point where we started to look at how do we understand what we're doing, not in terms of disciplinary orientation, mm. but in terms of social challenge or technological innovation or opportunity that doesn't exist in these spaces and that's something that as educators and design educators you yeah. have to respond to yeah. and that's yeah. that the pace of that desire to figure out how we prepare young designers mm. for this very rapidly changing environment has I would say dominated um, in the last you know 10 years in yeah. the last five years the trick is, <laughs> particularly in big universities, when we're talking about this large, top-down organization that yep. changes quite slow. That you know, if I want to make a significant change to our curriculum, let's say, I'm looking at two years yeah. minimum. Yeah, it's not going to happen in three months. No, and but you see the world iterating in yeah. three months, and it's hard to think about. Okay, if I'm starting this journey to to reform curriculum today, how can I start to understand what that's going to look like when the first student enrolls in first year mm. two years from now Absolutely. and graduates another three or four years yeah. later. So I think that's the trick. And, and, and I was just overseas. I was in London. I was in Hong Kong visiting mm. various you know, people yep. that I know and design schools and university partners. And I was at a conference uh, in Hong Kong as well, Cumulus, which is yeah. art and design. And it was either, you know, transdisciplinary design, transdisciplinary design, um, multidisciplinary design, however you describe it, participatory design. Yeah. Um, uh, these new approaches that, mm. that I, we have to, uh, many people are trying to f figure out how to privilege rather than the kind of traditional disciplinary sure. approaches. So I think... That's the, that's the biggest transformation because it's fundamentally changing the way I think we have to approach design education mm -hmm. and everyone is struggling with it because yeah. <laughs> yeah. it's, it's easy to see how it would be beneficial mm -hmm. but it's much harder to realize because you get into questions of how much disciplinary strength do you need and what disciplinary strength yeah. how do you apply it across and how do we actually get people to work you know, across disciplines, mm. in teams, um, to be entrepreneurial, all of these things yeah. that we can intellectualize and recognize that yeah. we have to do are quite hard to operationalize. Mm, yeah, <laughs> I bet they are. It's certainly a big challenge, I imagine, in your role. Um, yeah, probably my biggest mm. challenge. But what, what, I mean, I think if we can get it right, yeah. it, it will be transformative yeah. you know, across sectors and, and for our, our graduates. So I, I feel like it, it really is a, a huge responsibility. Mm, excellent. It'll be exciting to see how that, how that unrolls. Yes, won't it just? <laughs> yes, it will. <laughs> so we've seen an increase in awareness around social entrepreneurship and perhaps change by design uh, in these last or recent years. So what do you believe that tertiary educators can be doing in order to best prepare their students to, to exit the university, perhaps as change makers or as social innovators, you know, as they enter into their career? Yeah, I, and I think this is part of the same piece I was just talking yeah. about in that to recognize the impact of design means that we need to be able to look holistically, mm. kind of systems thinking and understand where opportunities um, 
lie for something that's not just going to be a better product or right. you know a sexier piece of technology, but that something that might transform communities, might um, contribute to new practices or habits that will you know reduce our impact on the climate. Yeah. And generally speaking, anytime I talk to you know our students, like that's what they want to do. Yeah. I don't need to give them the motivation because by and large, this generation is one that understands the precarious position of human existence on the planet. Yeah. And isn't necessarily chasing money in the way that maybe mm. uh, in, in previous generations that might have been more of a focus. Yeah, yeah. So the the motivation is there. That the again the challenge is how do we prepare, enable, facilitate that kind of ethical mm. um, approach to design. Yeah. In a way that that can be translated and. Um, Realized, yeah. Because it's one thing to say, I want to, you know, I want to have an impact, and I want to mm. use design to, you know, change the world, make it a better yeah. place. Well, okay, probably going to work for a big multinational company is not going to do that. Designing mm. remote controls for Philips is probably not going to do that. Yeah. Um, yeah. So, how, how do you do? How how does someone take that desire and their skill set and um, create some kind of impact? And I think that's where. This, the entrepreneurship comes in, mm. the ability for an individual or a team to say, I've identified a real problem, mm -hmm. I understand it, and I'm going to work through a design process to have bring something forward. Sure. And you know that's that's just another way of explaining you know entrepreneurship. Yeah. Uh, yeah. So I think what we really need to do is put that as a core skill set within design education mm. that anyone who's going anyone in the university full stop I would say should understand um, you know how do you identify a, a situation how do you you do research that you know focuses on that and then opens it up yeah. breaking biases yeah. um, how do you make it a business model like mm. honestly if you can't turn enough profit to support the development of that idea, it's not going to go yeah. anywhere. That's yeah. a hard reality. Yeah. So, you know, understanding, you know, the business side of it, um, where that's going, how you're going to grow, how you're going to scale, how you're going to make that change happen mm. um, in a way that's, uh, you know, savvy about yeah. how the world operates. Yeah. I think that the Foundation for Young Australians have some really interesting reports that talk about you know, enterprise skills being really important now and how a lot of the jobs that, that, that students are entering into now are, are going to be affected by automation and, and many other factors. So it makes sense that, you know, entrepreneurship uh, is embedded, it seems. Yeah, even if, even if it's a, a, an entrepreneur, yeah, even yeah, if, absolutely. if it's someone, yeah. uh, you know, a graduate goes out and works for a company, if they still have that mindset and they can see, you know, something in this organisation could be better and mm. I know how to realize it. So I think it is absolutely a fundamental 21st century capability because we know, and many, many reports will say, this is a terrain that is just going to continue yeah. to change and the rate of change is exponential. Yeah. So the best, you know, translator or skill set in some ways is that, you know, kind of enterprise entrepreneurial mindset mm. because that's something that's always questioning and provoking and looking at it from you know the end user point of view yeah like the, the number one message you know if there's not someone there for it it doesn't yeah. matter yeah if you've made the most amazing thing That's in the it. world or yeah. if you've got an idea how to change practices but nobody wants 
to come on board, mm-hmm. it's not going to go anywhere. Absolutely. So, I mean, I think that's, that's just got to be, you know, a fundamental part of, you know, first year design studio. Yeah, exactly. Like, it has to be integrated. Yeah. Um, and then I think also creating actual opportunities for making things happen before you graduate. So mm-hmm. I've been working with our QUT Starters, which is a student entrepreneurship group, and Excellent. the QUT Code Network, and yep. Creative Enterprise Australia, mm-hmm. and Blue Box, and trying to figure out ways that I could grow those partnerships to make sure that our students and our staff yep. know that if they want to, you know, do something sure. out of context, that there's a support network to, you know, follow through with some and help them out ideas. with that. Yeah, yeah, and you know, hopefully, I mean, my desire would be that they are. Um, entrepreneurial ideas that have social impact, whether it's social entrepreneurship or um, what have you, that, mm. that if you're, I mean, that's, and I think this, this school of design here at QUT does have a really strong ethical and moral uh, orientation, mm. so, um, and I think just keeping the opportunities and the support there is what's critical. Yeah, absolutely. Especially in the transformation, because as I already said, like, it's going to take a while to make any significant change, but yeah. the more we could do things co-curricular yeah. Yeah. Um, through work-integrated learning opportunities, mm. um, the, the better off we are in the long run. Yeah, excellent. Some really great insights. So just changing it up a little bit, we spoke a little bit earlier about the bureaucracy, mm. uh, perhaps of working in, in a larger institution. So as a leader and and a senior manager at a large university, what do you believe are some of the key ingredients necessary or fundamental to foster this culture of collaboration and innovation? Mm. Yeah, I think any big organization is probably the same. I just know universities the best because that's where I've been. And I found Mm. you have to be open. I think these are such basic things that, I'm sorry if it sounds too simplistic, but <laughs> open to hear other people's perspectives, yeah. to to be able to empathize mm. um, with others, to listen, and then you know find opportunities where there's enough common ground that that you can start something that's a mm. real collaboration. I think uh, a top-down collaborations don't work very well. Yeah. Um, it's good for the university to incentivize things, and they do, and that helps people maybe orient themselves in a particular direction. But the best collaborations come from people who start talking. Mm. So I'm a big believer in proximity. And unfortunately, I'm stuck in my office, but I try to get out and walk around. And every time I talk to someone, I'll think, oh, okay, there's a connection I can make. So it's really about creating a a network within Mm. the community and knowing who's doing what and where and who those natural collaborators are and, and going that route rather than saying, I've got an idea, I want this to happen, it's going to take this shape yeah. because that's my idea. Yeah. Um, then you don't really get anywhere. You have to be you know, quite agile um, mm. and understand what the essence is of you're trying to achieve and if that can translate into different opportunities. Yeah. So, uh, yeah, I think that's been my strategy. It's, yeah. it's worked pretty well. Yeah. And it's surprising. I mean, QUT has incredible people in every faculty mm. and every time I go out and I meet someone new I think oh there's so much potential here yeah. so it's getting you know us to come together yeah. uh, I was just at an event last week and I was talking with uh, Professor Roger Hellens from yeah. the Institute for Future Environments yeah. and he does uh, fruit futures and other fantastic things and and I was talking to him and and I started to 
see things I hadn't seen mm. because of the perspective he was sharing with me. Sure. And in that moment, you think, wow, there could be a new collaboration. Yeah. And that was yeah. just a cover, you know, a casual conversation. Yeah. So I think being open to that. Excellent. Yeah. And so QT last year hosted the, the Queensland Design Policy Summit. Correct. And so you've, you've got experience in pulling together different stakeholders between academia, between industry. What do you think of those or some of the challenges around pulling together different people to make such an event happen? I would say maybe the wrong question in a way in that pulling people together is easy. Getting people to come together, mostly that's schedule and and Mm. talking to the right people depending on who who you're trying to approach. The hard part, the real challenge is how do you do something with that? Mm. You get the people in the room, um, you're talking, what comes next? Yep. How do you start to create real, as we we're kind of talking about, real um, opportunities and collaborations post mm. a conversation like that? Yep. And I haven't been here that long, and that was sort of my first big event. And yep. we've been working with with a few folks, Monica Bradley and Peter Florenzos and um, Merrick Kowalkowitz mm-hmm. at the PwC chair around how can we unify some of the design community yeah. uh, in Queensland to post the summit. And we've been talking about it a lot, and it's easy to get kind of in that talking phase mm. instead of implementation. Sure. And particularly, the more disparate, the further out you get if you're really talking about you know, the science sector, yeah. public arts, you know, design disciplines, policy makers. Mm. Uh, and I, th- I think, again, that's something I... I want to try to want to try to get going, and we're yep. working on it. But that's that's the real challenge. And sometimes it comes mm. down to you know making time again, yep. finding what is the actual common purpose, yep. and what's the objective, and kind of getting everyone to agree on it and work towards it. Yeah. And it sounds simple, but it can be quite difficult. Yeah, I can I can certainly see where you're coming from there. Yeah. And would it be around creating sort of action steps or goals post that and, and being able to try and condense that information from such an event into something that people think can then go, okay, well, this is how we can drive this forward now and, and this is my role in doing that. It, yeah, I mean, when we're talking about hundreds of people, it's, it's certainly a challenge. Yeah, and uh, so we left the, the summit with a, a, a fairly s- simplistic idea and that let's do a design manifesto for Queensland. Mm. Let, let's do a call to arms. Let's you know, raise awareness. Let's talk about the contribution of design yeah. to Queensland you know, society. And, and even that, what ends up happening is that there are multiple perspectives on what that would mean and what that would look like yeah. and who are the stakeholders and trying to narrow that narrative into something mm. that really is um, representative of the broad community, sure. um, but still clear in mm. a common purpose, uh, is, 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 is tricky. And, and the great benefit is when you can really cast the net widely, but then that makes the challenge all the harder. Yeah, yeah. And, uh, you know, Full disclosure, I've been very busy this year, so I haven't been able to dedicate well, lots you? of time to it. So, so I, you know, I had only that on my plate. Maybe yeah. we would be there, and yeah. and that's actually the problem because we were talking about, you know, policymakers, thought leaders, yeah. um, uh, researchers, um, leaders in industry, getting all of those people to have the time to to 
focus on it. Mm. It's difficult. Yeah. But I'm continuing to have conversations, and, and you know, there'll, there'll be something next year. We're going to keep working on it. Excellent. Excellent. And you recently hosted the Social Lightscapes workshops in Brisbane, and you collaborated with some colleagues from the UK, I yeah. believe, with that. So could you please share a little bit more about what those workshops were, and um, what were they aiming to achieve? Yeah, I mean, this starts to get into my own personal research area, which has to do with artificial light and yep. built environments and um, the kind of facilitation of cultural practices mm. through artificial light. Yep. That's where I get really boring. I don't know reason. <laughs> I'll pull you up soon. That's right. No, but um, uh, so this, this group, uh, mm. Configuring Light, Staging the Social, which is um, held or hosted at uh, London School of Economics. Yep and uh, sort of co- co-directed by um, Joanne Edwistle at King's College London. Mm. Uh, so it was a nice partnership um, around a kind of sociological process and how we understand, and this is their research, they've been doing it for three or four years now, yeah. how can light um, respond to pressures in a community? How does it communicate mm. uh, values? How does it if we look at it closely, tell us about our own social relations. And yeah. if we think about that, how can we potentially change um, social relations, inequality? Uh, they've been working particularly on inequalities in light mm. and around social housing. Yep. So if you look at the lighting in a very well-to-do urban neighborhood, it's often atmospheric. They had this great example of a, an area in London where they still have a gas lamp, you know, and it's mm. this beautiful, romantic kind of nocturnal scene yeah, and yeah. then they show these high pressure sodium fluorescent super bright public housing projects and they talk about what does that tell us about how we value these different communities yeah, and how yeah. we think about their experience mm. and their needs yeah. um, and, and you go from something a discussion of atmosphere to a discussion of safety yeah. right yeah. Um, so we're marking communities the way that we like them Mm. And so, so it's, it's quite interesting, and and for me again, because I'm always sort of looking at this, what's what does it mean yeah. to people, yeah. what we do, uh, social impact. So we focused on the West End in part because I live there and I know it, yeah. and also because it's a neighborhood that's traditionally as diverse as they come yeah. in Brisbane. That has mm. had incredible um, gentrification rapid development, yeah, lots yeah. of cranes, lots of buildings, um, you know, indigenous history, yeah. um, Greek, Vietnamese, yeah. um, and this kind of flux and flow and what's happening and, and all of the kind of concerns with the West Village and what have you. Yeah. So the idea of the social lightscapes was that, you know, we spent, you know, three days essentially walking around um, the community, Boundary Street, talking mm. to shop owners, residents, visitors, yep. trying to understand their experiences of the space, their concerns, you know, nighttime and daytime, yep. and then seeing how potentially using different lighting strategies, we could start to, um, not, you know, we're not solving, yep. I don't, I don't want to ever speak about solving problems, yep. but maybe addressing yep. situations. Mm. So for example, one was, if you're familiar with the West End, there's a village along Boundary Road, lots of cafes and restaurants that kind of uh, natural heart of the of the you know older community yep. the the more su- su- established yep. community uh-huh. sorry I got there established community in the West End and then all the new development on the other side of Montague yep. uh, near the river 
Now, rapidly changing. Rapidly changing. And what the research found from the group was that the people that lived along the river tended to live along the river mm. and didn't really engage with the village and the kind of grunginess uh, and the culture. Yeah. And then it's sort of, mm, well, you know, I go in to work close yeah. to the CBD. Yeah. And so the idea was, is there a way to create some kind of light, um, light pathways between Montague and sort of the boundary area so that people were encouraged or, mm. you know, drawn like yeah. breadcrumbs yeah. towards that and trying to create more communities. That was just one of them. But the whole idea was understanding different communities. Yeah that comprise any given area, what their needs are, um, and, and, and how they want to see the, the community develop. So it's really a kind of community engagement yeah. in many ways. Really interesting project. Yeah, yeah it's great. It was really good. And we we're really lucky in this instance to have an industry sponsor. So Igazzini, this very well-known Italian lighting manufacturer, Excellent. they supplied all the lamps, they brought mm. in support. Uh, they actually sponsor um, a, one of the research fellows in the group. Yeah, excellent. So, yeah, it was good. Very good. Yeah. So beyond that particular project, have you seen any other projects or initiatives recently that you believe are really creating some great positive social change or, you know, contributing to research or um, other pathways that just improve situations or tackle, not perhaps not solve problems, as you say, but yeah. tackle or address issues? Yeah, I mean, the, the thing when you're talking about social change or kind of positive impact there's a there's a gestation and duration yes. that yeah. you know is it, is significant and mm. you know I've been here since April yeah. so whether or not I could list things that have succeeded but I think there's you know exciting initiatives uh, Troy Casey and some of his colleagues started the indigenous startup weekend yeah. recently and I think you know taking some of these enterprise and entrepreneurship ideas and using them to empower, you know, more um, traditionally marginalized communities mm. is fantastic. Yeah, yeah. Um, I think some Great of initiative. yeah, really good, really good. Uh, we have uh, the Enactus Network here at yeah. QUT, and mm -hmm. they're looking at um, uh, social entrepreneurship, and they've got a number of projects that that sound exciting and yeah. love to see develop. I, I know you've been working on some or starting in the I think around homeless. I mean, that's something particularly living in the West End mm. that I'm acutely aware of and yep. th there are some lovely communities that seem to get shifted mm. constantly yep. um, and I think that's really a shame Definitely. and I, I would love to see more people like yourself and others uh, in that space. Mm. So, so it's happening and mm. it's bubbling up and, and I think from my point of view it's whatever I can do in terms of marshalling resources to help support those initiatives. Yeah, excellent. Uh, I think it's great. There's tremendous goodwill mm. in Queensland. Yep. And I think so many people have their hearts and minds in the right place, in the right direction. Yep. But I, I also think it's early in the piece here. Absolutely. And so just starting to wind up now, if we look, we spread our vision more internationally. Are there any universities that you believe are really pushing this space of social change, social impact, um, social innovation, and really putting a rubber stamp on that and, and creating some excellent initiatives? Yeah, I, I think quite a few. Yeah. Uh, and, you know, to my, to my former comment, uh, you know, I think we're, we're catching up, mm. let's say, in the moment, um, without listing off too many names of universities. Yeah. I think, you know, if you, you look at Brown University, um, Carnegie Mellon, yeah. and uh, Cameron Tonkinwise, and the yeah. whole transition design sure. movement, uh, many universities, 
uh, MIT, yeah. um, Harvard, yeah. uh, King's College, uh, London School of Communication. Uh, most big universities now have some kind of social innovation, mm. social entrepreneurship, social engagement strategy yeah. uh, and, and programs. Uh, when I was in Hong Kong, there was a woman from, I think it was a London, yeah, London School of Communications, a new college of communications, a woman from the London College of Communications, and she had been running a program for a few years called Mass Challenge, mm -hmm. and it would take first-year design students out into the environment and encourage them to find kind of social challenges and then work through it. You mm -hmm. know, in first year, design yeah. studio, yeah. fantastic. Excellent. So I think there's lots of good models and, and you know, wonderful programs around the world, uh, and, but I think we have to figure out what's right for Queensland yeah. and what our issues and challenges are and capabilities and, yeah. and interests and, mm -hmm. and again just keep supporting, fostering, facilitating that, yeah. you know, because it's not a race. Yeah. What's important is that, that we enable those that have a desire to make, you know, a positive contribution to society. Yeah, yeah. excellent. There's some great insights there, Margaret. We're sitting in Margaret's office and there's a bookshelf here full of what look like wonderful books. I can, I can recognize a couple here. But Margaret, just to finish off, are there any particular books or resources that you'd recommend to the listeners around design or social entrepreneurship education? Oh, you know, that's a tough one because, as you can see, like, oh, I can I'm, see I'm a big a few fan there. <laughs> of books and as a historian, um, yeah, yeah, a very long list. And I mean, in fact, if one wanted, there's a terrific bibliography that um, Terry Irwin has put together with the transition design mm. team at Carnegie Mellon. It's on academia.edu. But I would say the most important thing, more than any single book, is the desire for knowledge and learning from whatever source yeah. married with that kind of outlook that what I'm doing is going to have a difference. Mm. So I'm constantly, whether I'm listening to a podcast on economics or entrepreneurship or uh, things are coming to me that I think, oh, that's, that's important. I mean, there's classics. You could go back to, you know, William Morris and, yeah. you know, Tales from Nowhere yeah. or, uh, you know, Victor Papnik. Uh, recognizing that the stuff we're thinking about today didn't come out in the last five years, mm. that, that the history of a kind of moral and ethical responsibility to uh, be a caretaker for the planet and mm. one's communities yeah. is, is very, very old. Yeah. And so I think whatever the interest or orientation of an individual is just do read, mm. do listen, yep. take on a breadth of experiences because there's richness in, in so many places that I would... I would, I would be sad if I mentioned one book and that was all mm. somebody Excellent. bothered to look at. <laughs> Margaret, it's been really, really great to speak to you today. So thanks very much for your generous insights and your time. Oh, I know. It's my pleasure. It's my pleasure. Much talk. appreciated. Thank you. Thank you. Thanks for listening to Impact Boom. You'll find links to the initiatives, people and resources mentioned in this podcast on impactboom.org. Please leave your comments below and remember we'll be publishing fresh inspiration and insights to help you create positive impact every week on the website, Facebook page and Twitter.